All right, Psalm 90. Uh, let's take a look at it for our next, uh, next few moments together. Uh, we've been talking here on Sunday evenings about the attributes of God or several of the uh, descriptions that the Bible gives of who God is. What we're trying to do is fill our minds with things that admittedly are hard to understand because they are about God. And so they stretch our mind to the limits. But that's not just so that our minds might get stronger. It's also so that our hearts might get stronger. Uh, the more you realize God is bigger than you are, the more fortified your heart can be against all the other things that might tempt you to be afraid or might tempt you to go and follow and serve it as if it's your Savior. And so tonight we look at this uh, great psalm. It's, it's referred to, as we noted, as a psalm of Moses. Uh, and in it, Moses is teaching Israel to think of God as the one and only everlasting one. The only one who by nature lasts forever. Have you ever had a wonderful uh, experience maybe in life with some temporary thing and maybe you thought, wow, I wish this would last forever. I wish this moment could be frozen in time and it would never end. Have you ever had those moments? Uh, those, those occasions can be very precious. But what happens not long after you have those precious moments? The fish stop biting. Yeah, Bob has told us what he thinks of. The fish immediately stop biting or whatever it is. It ends very quickly. No sooner have we thought, oh, I wish this would last forever, than it comes to an end. Something comes and takes its place. Uh, the Bible tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has planted eternity into the human heart. And I think part of what that means is that there's something in us that nothing in this world can satisfy, right? Because if eternity is planted there, there's not any number or any amount of temporary things that can fill an eternal hole, right? You just can't do it. You can keep pouring it in and pouring it in. It just keeps on gaping and keeps on being hungry for more. But I think it also means a second thing, and that is that even though nothing in this world can satisfy the human heart, there is something that can because God planted eternity in the human heart. And so God intends that desire that we have that there would be something good that would last forever. God intends that to be satisfied and fulfilled by nothing less than himself. And this is the thing that Moses here in this psalm is so eager to teach. You got to remember Moses' situation. What was Moses' job description? Lead a hard-headed, stiff-necked people out of slavery into the promised land. And by the way, it's going to take the rest of your life. Forty years of desert wandering. There's going to be reminder after reminder that everything in life is here today, gone tomorrow, passing away. Nothing can satisfy. Why? To train Israel to look higher, to look to the God, to the God who made them and the God who redeemed them. To be the one that can satisfy the hunger for eternity in their heart. And so Moses writes this psalm, puts it, and later it's put into the book of Psalms, right in the middle of, our, of the Bible, to teach us this fundamental truth. There is only one who lasts forever, and that is the living God who made us. And so if you look at your um, bulletin, there are three things we want to look at. Really, the, the song uh, divides into three sections. Uh, in verses 1 and 2, we see Moses adoring the eternal God. 
And then in the middle part of the psalm, from verses 3 to 11, most of it is taken up with Moses struggling with our brevity. He's wrestling with the briefness of human life in contrast with God's eternity. And then finally, he comes back around in verses 12 to 17 to seek the eternal God, to pray towards God, to ask him to fill that void that this life and this world cannot fill. So we want to look at those three together. First of all, the adoration of the eternal God in verses 1 to 2. Some of the most famous verses in the Bible. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now think about that. Why would Moses describe God as the dwelling place of his people? Why is God their house? Well, if you think about what a house is, or what a house provides, that might give you some clues as to why he describes God that way. What are some of the things that a house provides? Shelter, safety, security. Uh, we, we better say it too. That a house provides comfort, joy, satisfaction. I mean, we, we know this. If anybody's ever traveled a lot, maybe for your job, or, and I'm talking about here, travel that you didn't want to do necessarily, you know that no matter how cozy or ample the accommodations are, it's not home, is it? You check into one hotel, you go to another, and you don't ever fall into the trap of thinking, I'm home. Because even though you're safe, you're not there because you want to be there. You're not there for enjoyment. You're not there because you get this sense of homey comfort from the place where you are. You know you're far away. You know you have still many more miles to go, much more to do before you can come back home and settle or rest. That's what Moses was getting at. God was not only a shelter that kept them safe, he wasn't just useful. God is not just useful. God is delightful and enjoyable. God is a place that doesn't just provide the things we need. God is, is, is one that we can come into and live in and get all the things that give us the most supreme happiness and joy in life. The place where finally our hearts can come to rest. Just imagine when Moses first taught this song to the Israelites in the desert, how this must have sounded. Did Israel have a dwelling place in the wilderness for 40 years? Physically, not much to write home about. They had tents that they had to pick up and fold up and move from one place to another. I mean, I know some people that like to camp, but I don't know anybody who would want to camp for 40 years. Nobody. It would not be desirable to take a tent, bag it up, move to the next place, unfold it over and over and over again for all that time. And by the way, you're in the desert. So the longing of people's hearts for some place to come to, to, to settle would have been very much right front and center on the minds of the Israelites. And it's in that context that Moses says, look, this is not just our problem, okay? We today, wilderness generation, we don't have a home here on earth. We need a home in God. Well, that was true of our fathers too. Think about those who went before us in Egypt. They were slaves. And yeah, they had a physical structure to live in, but what kind of existence is it to be foreign slaves in Egypt? It wasn't very pleasant. 
And yet that, those generations also had God. By the promises that he had given to their forefathers, they had God as their dwelling place. Well, then think about the forefathers themselves, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did they have a place to live on this earth? Not much more than what the Israelites in the desert had. They had tents. They bounced around from place to place. They were nomads. And yet God taught Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am your reward and I am your abode. I am your dwelling place, your refuge for you to come into and find rest. Why can God be the dwelling place of his people? Not just useful, but also enjoyable for all generations. Why? Only one reason. Because God is from everlasting to everlasting. Do you see that in verse 2? The Lord has been our dwelling place in all the generations because before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God has no beginning. Every other thing has a beginning. Only God has no beginning. Moses picks the two things that most people would think didn't have a beginning. The oldest things we can imagine. Mountains. Hills. Things that seem absolutely immovable. And he says in comparison to those things, in comparison to God, those things are young. Before the mountains ever were birthed by God, God was. No beginning. Also, no ending. From everlasting to everlasting. God has no beginning. God has no ending. And then from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, present tense. God has no variation or change in any point of time. God does not have a beginning, a middle, an end, a, a, a conflict, and a resolution. God is who God always was and who God always will be from the very beginning all the way to the very end. Wow. Doesn't this blow your mind? It should. Um, I know a lot, of, a lot of folks, and I feel this way sometimes, even just stopping to think about eternity, I have to stop after a while because I can't even fully comprehend what forever will be like. And, it, and it's just as mind-boggling to think about forever in the past direction, right? That God had no beginning. What is that even? How, is that, how can we describe that for a being to just be without any origin story. And yet, because this is true about God, that means God is unlike any other created thing he's ever made, which means God can provide a shelter for his people like nothing else can provide. And God can provide a rich fountain of enjoyment, a fullness flowing into our lives that nothing else can provide either. If God were not eternal, he would not be all-sufficient for us. Well, he would not even be all-sufficient for himself. Because anything that has a beginning depends on something to begin it. But here's the great thing about God. He had no beginning. He depends on no one. Therefore, when we come to him, we should expect we're coming to one who has more than enough to meet whatever small needs we might have. And, 
And even our biggest needs compared to God's supply are relatively small needs to him, right? Because of how immense he is. Without being eternal, God would not be as glorious as he is. Therefore, he would not be able to bring us everlasting joy. That, that eternity that's planted in our hearts, even God himself wouldn't be able to fulfill if God were not eternal in himself. So think about it. Moses is meditating himself, and he's helping Israel meditate on this wonderful truth about God so that while they're wandering around from place to place and not really sure, you know, what it could be on this earth. Will it be the manna? Will it be the quail? Will it be the promised land? What will satisfy me? Moses is saying, don't look to created things. Look above those things. Look above the hills and find the God who birthed the hills because there you have someone who is eternal in himself. In a world of change and decay, there is one in God who never changes or wears out or decays or loses anything. Now think about that. How does that fortify your heart? How, how does that strengthen you to think about that way? We can always depend on God, right? I agree. Absolutely. No matter what it is that we find insurmountable, we have to realize we find it insurmountable because here we are at a certain point in time, you know, ourselves creatures of time, being carried away by time. But above it all is God, not bound by any of that, not bound by any of the limitations. Clint? Yes. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I hope everybody heard that. If not, let me briefly summarize. Eternity defines every other thing about God. So he's love. He's eternal love. He's justice. He's eternal justice. He's holy. He's eternally holy. Um, and that's true, really, of all the attributes of God. Each one can qualify and describe all the others because God is one uh, you know, unified whole, right? Uh, the eternal God has uh, not only abilities, but he has a character that is entirely different from anything else that he made. And so while we have this experience over and over of being disappointed in created things, we ought not to be surprised at that or overly discouraged by that. That's just a reminder that we're supposed to look beyond it. We're supposed to look above those things that are of a moment, those things that are creaturely, and we're supposed to look to God for those things that only God can give. Uh, one writer says this, uh, God has kept an open house for us, sheltering us against storms, preserving us from mischief as a house uh, protects an inhabitant from wind and weather, so God has surrounded us from generation to generation. God, who is not uh, subject himself to these uh, comings and goings of time and of the world, is able to become to us a, a great shelter, one that we draw a lot of encouragement from, one that we can even delight in and enjoy. 
All right, that's the first thing. And that's what Moses is saying in verses 1 and 2. We should just simply adore the fact that God is eternal. But then secondly, no sooner do we begin to adore God's eternity that we begin to feel our brevity. And I want you to observe something in the psalm in verses 3 to 11. Um, I would classify a lot of what Moses is teaching us to say as a sanctified complaint. And according to the Psalms, not all, thank you, according to the Psalms, not all complaint is bad. I think we've talked about this before. On Sunday night, I think it was, where we talked about good complaint versus bad complaint. Maybe you remember it. Uh, a bad kind of complaining is that bitterness that accuses God of wrongdoing in our hardship. Uh, usually bad complaining separates us from God. It, it causes us to want to run away and hide and, you know, distrust him and his ways. Good complaining is what's modeled for us in the Psalms. It's where we take honestly our difficulties with life as it is. And we bring them in all their honesty to God, not away from God. We're not trying to hide. We're not trying to distrust. Instead, what we're trying to do is lay them all out in front of God so that we can understand them in God's light. That's a good thing to do. And Moses does that uh, in verses 3 to 11. He says to God, verse 3, you return man to the dust and you say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past. God, you have this, this eternal nature that makes a thousand years seem like it's just a single day, just a single night. So you're, you're really high and, and exalted above time, and yet here you are calling us into life and calling us out of life in a moment. You say, be born and we are born. You say, return to dust and we return to dust. God... How can we possibly stand in front, of, in front of someone so mighty as you who holds the power of life and death in your hands? He goes on to describe, God, you sweep them away like a flood. Like a flash flood running through a town carrying everything with it. That's the way death is. It's, just, it's this never-ending stream that one day is going to catch us all. And you can run. As fast as you can run away from it, and it's, it's going to catch up with you. Death stops for no one. And when people die, they become like a dream or like grass. You know how a dream is when you wake up and realize you've dreamed? Sometimes you're disappointed. <laughs> uh, other times you're very relieved that you woke up and, oh, whew, that was just a dream. Either way, when you realize it was just a dream you quickly forget about it, don't you? It becomes unreal, as if it didn't even happen. And what Moses is complaining about here is it's like our lives are so short, it's almost like all that time we spend living on this earth, 70, maybe 80 years, he says, if we're especially strong, as soon as we die, we get forgotten. And that seems so frustrating, doesn't it? I mean... Think about it. How many of you know the name of your great-great-grandparents? You might. How about your great-great-great-grandparents? You might. But it's fairly rare, I think we would all agree. That's how quickly you're going to get forgotten. And me too. 
And there's something about that. When you look at it, you just think, wow, our, our lives, it's kind of like in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity, all is vanity. Everything is like breath and wind and we're here one day and we're gone the next. He says it's not only like a dream, it's like the grass. It's like the flower, you know, it rises up in the morning and it's green and then the heat of the day beats down on it for a few hours and it's brown. And that's us. Then Moses adds to that and he says what we know is that this this mortality, this brevity of our lives is a result of our sin. And so it's even worse. Not only do we live out life, this short little life, and it feels like kind of a waste sometimes, but we realize we, we're getting what we deserve. And that makes it even more bitter. He says in verse 7, we are brought to an end by your anger, Lord. It's by your wrath that we're dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you and our, even our secret sins. Our secret sins are known in the light of your presence. And it's for those sins that we are all brought to the dust, that we're all brought to death. Who can, who can stand? Who can live under these conditions? You see what Moses is doing here. He's, he's complaining or sanctified complaining about the brevity of life, but he's doing it in such a way as to see it in the light of who God is. And this is, this is so important, especially when it comes to something like death. How do you think most people think about death? Just think about that. You might even think about how do you think about death? Is it like Moses? I'd say most people don't have nearly a sanctified view of it. I think many people, at least that I've talked to, either A, try with all their might not to think about death, or B, they, have some, they either have a defiance of it where they're trying with all their might to keep it away. Uh, all these strategies of good health and diet and exercise and all the rest, which are not bad, but listen, it's a flash flood, y'all. It's still going to reach you. It might reach you slightly further down the road, but it's still going to reach you. And, and so we, you know, we, cannot, uh, we cannot stave it off, and yet many people try to. Uh, other people just simply give up in despair. Okay, I, I'm here today. I'm gone to tomorrow, so let me just make the most of the little time I have, and I'm going to waste it away. At least I'll feel good now. But very few people look at death square in the face like Moses and give a vent to their heart's frustration over it, and yet also see it in the light of God. God, this reminds me, wait a minute, I'm going to die after 70 or 80 years, but for you, a thousand years is like a day. And, and God, I'm going to die because I've offended you. I've, I've sinned against you, and so have my fathers before me all the way back to Adam, which is why I'm going to have to pay the price of death. But, oh, Lord, you've told me in your word that though I might, I'll have to pay the price of death on this earth, temporary death, I do not have to pay the price of eternal death. Because, oh, God, eternal God, the one for whom a thousand years is as a day, you have made a way for sinners like me to escape your wrath. 
If I'll but, as it says in verse 11, if I'll consider the power of your anger, if I'll consider your wrath in fear of you, then I'll have a prayer to pray, which will help me be ready to face my demise. Isn't that a marvel? Most of the time, people don't look at death and think, there's the price for my sin. And yet, not seeing that skews our entire view of death. It turns it either into something to be ignored, which is not very smart, or it turns it into something to be avoided, which is not possible. Right? Or it turns it into something to be made up for by having a good time here and now, which is not ever going to make up for it. When you're able to see my death one day, whether it's 70, 80, 90, 100 years, my death one day is certain, and it is the price I must pay for sin, then it opens you up to do what Moses does next, which is, oh God, Work in me in such a way as to save me from an eternal death. It's all right if I lose this body temporarily into the dust. That I must do. But after that comes the judgment. Please help me be prepared to face that. And that's something, God, you have said you are willing to prepare me for. Do you see what I mean? If we complain about things in life without bringing them into the light of God then we're not going to know what it is we can pray for and what it is God has to offer us in face of that bitterness. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to feed our bitterness with more bitterness. And it's going to end up becoming a spiral of bitterness. Moses says, my life is brief and it's frustrating, but oh God, you are not brief. And oh God, I know why I'm going to have to die. Because as soon as Adam ate the fruit of the tree, he shall surely die, and I shall surely die. It's a price we all must pay. But, oh God, let me offer my prayer to you that I not pay a, more, a greater price than that. And so that leads us to our last thing, which is found in verses 12 to 17, the prayer of Moses, where he doesn't just complain or struggle with the brevity of life, but he actually seeks the eternal God's help in the face of the brevity of life. Has anybody ever, have you ever moved before? I know you have, or at least most of y'all have. Is that fun? Is that uh, easy? No, there's much you have to think about, right? There's all kinds of equipment you need, boxes, trucks, people, friends, or people that you want to be former friends that you invite to help you, <laughs> right? Moving is not pleasant. Moving takes a great deal of effort. And what we see in verses 12 to 17 is something like this. Moses, who started worshiping God for his eternity, then began to consider his brevity, and it really got him stirred up, but yet he's never going to lose sight of the fact that God's eternal, so he's holding both in tension. And then now at the end, he's making all the effort in the world to move himself from the source of his complaint fully over to the eternal God. 
Like he wants to get to a place where the brevity of life doesn't sink him into the pit, but rather becomes the springboard for him to enjoy his God, which is why he prays as he does. First of all, verse 12, look at what he says. Teach us to number our days. Why should we number our days? To get a heart of wisdom. This is the first step to moving. If you think about, you know, death as a move from this world to the next, this is the first step. Number your days. But don't just number your days. Ask God to teach you to number your days. Because, you know, we can number our days. We can say, all right, well, I've got, you know, 25, 30 more years or whatever, give or take. But what is the difference between me sitting down and doing that and me saying, God, teach me to number my days so that I might get wisdom? The difference is this. You're asking God to not only show you, like, the day on the calendar, which actually he won't show you the exact day on the calendar. But it's asking God to give to you that heart that is willing to accept that you are mortal. And that whenever that day is, we don't know, that day will come and God teach me to have the heart that is prepared for it and that is not senselessly trying to avoid it, but that is prepared to go to it in peace. God, teach me. You're the eternal God. You had no beginning. You have no end. You have much to teach me about how to live in time because you're above it. So show me how to do that. Show me how not to assume that I will last forever and that I will never have to stand before you in judgment. Give me a clear sense of what that judgment day will be like, on what basis you will judge me, and how I can escape your wrath. God, teach me to number my days that I, or that we, may get a heart of wisdom. Wow. Well, then in verse 13, he turns from asking for wisdom asking for mercy that's a good connection there between those two things Uh, as of course as soon as I get wisdom to think about my life being brief to think about how after my death which is certain I'm going to face judgment which is just as certain immediately my heart thinks oh lord have pity prepare me for that judgment day I know that in myself I am unprepared. So return, O Lord, how long? How long, Lord, will you let me walk around as an unprepared person? How long will you allow us to wander around the wilderness not knowing who we belong to or where we are headed or what he's going to say when we get there? God, have pity on your servants to teach us not only to number our days, but to teach us that it's by your mercy that we'll be able to stand before you when we do reach that place, that place of judgment, that place of justice. Wow. Teach us to number our days. Have pity on your servants. Verse 14, he gives the third step. So there's wisdom, there's mercy, and then there's satisfaction. What does he ask God to satisfy him with? His steadfast love. God, satisfy me in the morning. Why do you think he says in the morning? 
Yeah, that's right. So you can think about it all day. That's good. Hey, start, start my day with a satisfaction in your love. It was George uh, Mueller who used to say that before, and he, he ran numerous orphanages in England. He was a very busy man. And he said he would wake up every morning, and the first item of business is he would spend as long as it took in his devotions to happy his heart in God. And he wouldn't get up from his devotions until he had happied his heart in God. That's a good insight, Kim. You know, Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that all the rest of my day and all the rest of my days, I might know where true satisfaction comes from. It doesn't come from these created things that are going to pass away. It comes from God's love. Uh, this steadfast love is that word hesed that we've talked about. Hesed. This is the covenant love of God. The love that God pledges to his people by promise. And the love that God delivers through sacrifice. Through the blood. The love that comes through Jesus Christ. Let that satisfy me in the morning. It may also be that he mentions the morning because, well, if you think about it, uh, when you start to contemplate your death, it, doesn't that feel like night setting in? Isn't that a dark? You might call it a dark night of the soul to sit there and think about, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I mean, it's a very dark thought. And Moses is saying, I, I'm looking forward to when that thought breaks and the sun rises and Instead of just seeing death and just getting all down and mopey, I begin to see the sunshine of the resurrection, the sunshine of my Father's face in heaven that I'm going to see when I die. Satisfy me with your steadfast love. Why? So that I can rejoice and be glad in you all our days. Here's the marvel of Christianity. It makes dead men rejoice. It makes dying women celebrate. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your sting now that Christ has been raised from the dead? Where is your sting? We, we know that the sting of death was, was sin. Sin is what makes death sting. That's what Moses has just told us. God, we know we die because of your anger, and that makes death sting. And the sting of sin was in the law because the law stood against us with its legal demands, and it condemned us. Oh, but because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, death loses its sting because the law has been fulfilled in Christ. And God has become our friend in Christ, reconciled to us, giving us his Holy Spirit, reconciling us fully in his love. Death is real, but death doesn't sting because Jesus rose from the dead. And so I can face it and celebrate. I can face it and rejoice. Many times, a non-Christian perspective will take this angle. It'll say, you're depressed about dying? Well, why are you thinking about that? If you're depressed about you're going to die, well, stop thinking you're going to die. Just think about something else. Isn't that the world's strategy for nearly everything? Just divert the attention. Shoot. Go to your next distraction or your next amusement and just numb yourself. In other words, a non-Christian perspective can only go this far. If your thinking about reality is bumming you out, stop thinking. Think less. But here's Christianity. If reality is bumming you out, think more. 
Think about a higher reality. Think about a deeper reality. <laughs> think about an eternal reality that dwarfs the temporary that's bumming you out. Right? Understand that God, by taking the sting out of death, sets his people free to be satisfied in his love morning and night all the days of their lives. In fact, I love verse 15. It's, it's a glorious verse where, where Moses is asking God to make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. And, and I, I don't know, I don't think I can explain that verse, I guess, to anybody who hasn't experienced it. It's one of those things you just have to experience. That the Lord, by his steadfast love and kindness that he shows us, is actually able to make up for, and more than make up for, all the sorrow of this life. And I don't know how to explain that other than he does it. And you'll know it when he does it for you. Right? And, and according to Moses, it's something that you can pray for. If you haven't experienced it, you can pray for it. If there's pain and loss and the, the prospect of death that's still bothering you and, and paralyzing you maybe even in some way, this is giving you permission to pray, God, give me such satisfaction in your love that it dwarfs all my sorrow, that it dwarfs all my pain. Let your work be shown on your servants, verse 16, and your glorious power to their children. Let the grace or the favor of the Lord be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Lord, though our lives are, are brief, and though from a worldly perspective they may seem full of trouble and evil, as it said up in verse 10, and though our work may seem to be wasted, because here we are like grass, green one moment, brown the next, Lord, if we are satisfied in your love, you will give us more joy in you than, can, than, than is even needed to drown our sorrows. And you will also establish the work of our hands so that even the little things that we do in this life that seem so kind of small and insignificant, they can actually pay eternal dividends because God is able to take what we invest in his kingdom and make it increase a hundredfold. This is what it looks like to seek the eternal God in the midst of a brief world as a brief person. It starts with adoring him. It starts with just getting your mind full of the, just the wow factor of a God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Don't think God is just like you, but bigger. No, he's different, a whole, very different than you. Very different than me, and that is where our encouragement lies. Then, be honest. It is hard to be a human being in this world of sin and misery sometimes. It's very hard. And there's nothing harder than knowing that all that we do can be gone in a moment and will be gone in a moment one day. And yet, if we see it in the light of God, it opens up the avenue to pray, which opens up wisdom, mercy, satisfaction. The wisdom to number our days, the mercy to be prepared for what comes after, and the satisfaction of God's steadfast love, morning and night, day in and day out, the sting is taken out of death so that even those who know they're facing death can rejoice. They can sing. 
Remember what it said about Jesus in Hebrews? He endured the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him. Sometimes I, I wonder, and I don't know this for a fact by any means, but I wonder. I know Jesus knew the Psalms. The Psalms as we have them were in their present form when Jesus lived. They, they were sung. They were used in the synagogues and in the temple. Sometimes I wonder, was this among the Psalms that Jesus contemplated in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross? God, teach me to number my days. God, have mercy. Not just on me, but most especially have mercy on those for whom I'm dying. And, O oh Lord, satisfy me and them with your steadfast love. And it's for that joy that Jesus endured the sting of death so that we didn't have to. Amen.